listening to Brunch with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Friday morning. Now, let's turn to our next guest and topic of today. In the next 15 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about the challenges of higher education, specifically in East Asia. And I'm really delighted to be joined once again by Hugo Horta, who's an associate professor from the Academic Unit of Social Contexts and Policies of Education at the University of Hong Kong. Welcome back on the program, Professor Horta. It's great to speak to you again today. Thank you so much. Uh, Pleasure to be here again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the last time uh, you came on, uh, we talked about your interest in educational reform and you had a particular special interest in poverty and education. This time, um, let's perhaps start with your recent paper. You, you published a paper on the emerging and near future challenges of higher education in East Asia. Uh, g- give us a little bit of a background and an outline of what it's about. Sure. So, um, so basically, I was a bit inspired um, by a previous paper that was uh, published by my call. Well, um, one colleague that was is based in, in in the Republic of Korea, the other one that is based in Australia, and perhaps um, now forty years ago, they wrote a paper about you know what would um, higher education systems in uh, East Asia and the Pacific would be. Um, so, I, I, I took a bit of inspiration from there, and uh, I looked at the 21st century uh, so far. I mean, how was the evolution uh, of these higher education systems and to what extent it, it relates um, with all economic labor market indicators to see uh, what, where are we now in terms of development and uh, what are um, already some challenges that we're already facing, but also some challenges that these systems will definitely face in the future. And by kind of um, having an idea of what this can be might inform already not only the policymakers, but also the the general population and um, to be more informed and know what to expect um, in the near future. Yeah. Oh, I think our next guest has just joined um, the program. Maybe, Brian, you can log out and um, (laughs) sorry, maybe you can log out and then we can get to you later on. Sorry about that, Professor. <laughs> it's great. He could, he could also join the discussion. That would be also fun. <laughs> yeah, funny you say that. I think um, I think I think Brian is also studying for his masters. So that is um, uh, very interesting. Perhaps uh, we, we can get him to share his thoughts in the next segment. So yes, you mentioned just now. Thank you, Brian. You mentioned just now uh, about the challenges, the existing challenges that these uh, tertiary education uh, institutions face. Uh, what are some of them? Can you give us some examples? And this is predominantly in East Asia, right? So, um, so basically, uh, basic up to the twenty first century, um, most of the challenges were pretty much related to challenges of massifying these systems. Basically, meaning bringing people um, to participate in the higher education system, getting um, qualified, um, having bachelors, engage in post graduation, so on and so forth. And, you know, it, it has a lot of challenges associated to it, uh, which continue today. Um, one of them is the challenge of um, access and equity, but also um, how social and economic um, determinants continue to affect very much um, the outcomes of, of this education in terms of the labor market. So there are problems. There continue to be, to a very large extent, unresolved. And 
the issue on, in, in, I mean, the way to resolve them goes beyond just um, transformations in universities. Now, as um, higher education systems in Asia developed, uh, and some of them were already pretty well developed when we um, entered the 21st century, I'm thinking about uh, the Japanese higher education system, for example, who have been developing for quite a long time without any major disruptions, or, or the Korean one that you know had the disruption of the civil war in the 1950s. Uh, the Taiwanese also uh, pretty much stable, but then you had others such as the Chinese who whose system had to be basically rebuilt from scratch uh, after the Cultural Revolution, but evolved really quickly. So we had systems that were already mature, systems that were already well established, um, that had a, a slower kind of um, development, a slower intake of students. And then we have systems who um, developed extremely quickly, such as the Chinese one, which beat world records, really, um, in terms of how fast it grew and developed not only in terms of new students, but in terms of new institutions, in terms of the offering of, of disciplinary um, educational um, possibilities, uh, in terms of uh, curricular flexibility, etc. And then we have others that are developing also quick, not as fast as the Chinese one, such as the case of Mongolia, for example. Um, so I looked into all of those. And um, although they are in different stages of development, uh, all of them face pretty much, uh, Mongolia might be the exception here, um, the same three challenges. Um, and the three challenges are, um, one, the first one and the most pressing one um, is a challenge that relates to um, demographics. Um, so we're, we're experiencing um, in most of these countries um, a decreasing mortality rate. So the fertility rate is going down and we already see um, uh, numbers of population also decreasing in these countries. Uh, populations who are becoming older, uh, they're becoming aging societies because the lifespan of people uh, is longer. And, you know, these trends, when, when we see it in, in the coming maybe 10, 20 years, um, I mean, they show uh, evidence that is very clear, which is uh, the number of students in uh, university entering age, uh, which broadly internationally is considered from 18 to 23 years old, will decline uh, substantially. Now, what does this mean? This means that um, less and less students um, in the appropriate age, uh, in the traditional appropriate age, let's call it that way, to enter university will be less and less, meaning that the current infrastructure in terms of the number of universities displacements, courses, so on, entirely necessary, uh, meaning that there will be basically a cost that will need to be reduced, uh, particularly um, from the public sector in terms of uh, diminishing um, the burden that they represent uh, for public budgets, but also from the private sector in terms of making um, the business sustainable. So we have uh, higher education systems which are highly privatized, such as the case of the Japanese uh, or the Korean system. Um, these systems will probably endure the greatest pain uh, in the sense that uh, the students tend to prefer to go to public universities, to public higher education institutions uh, rather than private, and not only for a matter of cost, uh, but also for a matter of prestige. Uh, usually the public institutions tend to be the most prestigious, and families and students pursue that. 
So um, we we were going to see um, the need for consolidation of, of these education systems. And what does this mean? It means that many universities will need to close. Many universities will need to merge with one another. And as you can imagine, this is always a painful process because it means that many people are going to be made redundant. Um, a lot of vacancies for the academic profession that we have today will be gone because there's not going to be the same need uh, for academics that we might have today. And please uh, take note that this includes China. Uh, the golden years of the academic labor market in China um, are basically at their end. Uh, it's We are already in the tail of it. Um, so for new PhD students, finding jobs in, in academia is going to be increasingly challenging. And then we have something else that is happening, um, more from the economic part. And in the economic part, although uh, human capital theories continue to be valid in terms of the more educated one is, the more is the premium that one tends to get, um, analysis, recent analysis have been showing that this premium comparative to other educational levels is getting less and less um, um, evident, uh, meaning that uh, the investment um, in higher education versus the premium that one might get later on to get the return and an extra benefit from, from this investment will be lesser and lesser. Of course, this um, varies a lot according to uh, disciplinary areas, um, with those in STEM still in a better place than those in the social sciences and the humanities. Um, certain, um, certain disciplines also guarantee a bit more resilience in terms of economic crisis. Um, they guarantee um, that one might not be uh, made redundant as easily as other from other disciplines. So there's a lot of complexities there. There are even complexities within the same discipline. So, for example, um, in Korea, something that was quite interesting was some of the very best paid uh, graduates come from economics, but those in economics are also the ones experienced the hardest difficulties in getting into Finding a, a job. good job. Right. So the unemployment in terms of graduate unemployment is quite large in economics. Oh, yeah. So, so it's a risk. Right. Yeah. We're dealing increasingly with you either risks. get a really good job or you can't find a job at all from that same degree. Right. Right. So the competitiveness is, is increasing uh, all around, um, increasing the risks of an investment that up to perhaps two decades ago would be much safer in terms of expectations. For universities, there is and and, and this involves now families and uh, the students themselves. Um, technology is really changing um, the scenario in terms of outcomes of, of higher education. And, and what do I mean by this? Um, the introduction of AI um, and the force industrial revolution and other technological advancements uh, is increasingly making the idea of you know, um, I go to the university to learn uh, about economics and I'm going to have a job in economics and this job will be long lasting or I might have two or three jobs that will be, um, you know, uh, what my career will be and, and they will pay off and so on and so forth. This is increasingly uh, less likely to happen. Um, it's not obvious at all um, which jobs will endure in the next 5, 10, 20 years. 
Uh, anyone who can who, who tells you, oh, I know how the job market will look like, well, um, they're either feeling very inspired or have no idea and, and they're just guessing what it might be. Nobody really knows. But what we know is that um, I think the connection is these just new technologies are, are bringing graduates. No, I just want... mean. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Professor. I just wanted to pick up on one point that you, you made. Just wanted to clarify that you mentioned demographics is, is a big one. So basically, the decrease of population and the decrease of fertility rate is going to really affect the end results of universities because when the demand is not there, um, you're going to need fewer teaching staff and even the fewer uh, existence of universities um, uh, itself. But but one point I wanted to pick up on is what about the appetite of of higher education. I mean, here in Hong Kong, um, people want to get into university and even after their degrees, their bachelor's degree, if they can, they'd like to still get a master's and and then they enter the job force. What about the appetite in, say, in East Asia, in Japan, in uh, South Korea? Um, are they also wanting to study for a master's degree? Do they, or, or has the attitude shifted? Do they just don't see the... Um, uh, there's less desire to get that before they enter a job market? Or does it really depend on the job? You know, are employers still very much looking for that degree and the master's degree? Oh, the appetite, the appetite continues and, and it will continue. Um, even if it's motivated by um, personal interest, intrinsic motivation to, uh, you know, I want to develop myself, I want to learn new things just for the sake of learning them and for the sake of knowing. And, and that is always a motivation that students have. But also due to extrinsic kind of motivators, because, you know, if you have um, more formal education, you can uh, come to an employer and say, look, I have this extra set of skills that might be quite useful for, um, for your company, for your organization. And it, it gives an advantage in the, in the labor market. At the same time, it has another benefit, and, and which is, again, a lot of graduates that went to the labor market, they are pretty, pretty much aware that things are changing, um, that new demands are coming, um, that new expectations are arising. So um, many of them see this as, you know, um, almost like a, a risk management strategy where, you know, I have several competences in different places. Um, therefore, even if one becomes obsolete, I still have the other two um, that can lend me a job in something that I have interest or in, in, in some kind of job or career that is relatively well paid. So um, instead of, okay, I only have competences in this, if for some reason this becomes obsolete, um, I'm going to be a bit in trouble because I might have difficulties in getting a job or getting a job at the same level of, 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 uh, of salary or of career that uh, I aspired to when I started. So um, there's a lot of this going on. And sometimes people are a bit critical about the idea of technology, about the idea of AI. Um, and it's always good to remember um, how quickly when it happens, how quickly it happens. I mean, if we think about mobile phones that for all of us are you know, pretty, pretty normal, it's banal. I mean, maybe 30 years ago, there's not that many people with mobile phones and, and suddenly everybody's using them. Um, then social media came to mobile phones and everybody was using social media on mobile phones and gave it even a bigger boost. It happened in a matter of one, two decades. Exactly. So when transformation comes, comes really quickly.
And in these universities have a big role. And this is, let me just add quickly about this because the courses need to be more generalistic. They can't be so focused on a particular technical knowledge for a given profession. They have to be broader in a way to give the students at least the basic skills to learn something else. Um, this is something that universities need to do, that uh, accreditation agencies need to be on board as well, but families as well. The big concern here is that families and students still get into the university, into a course, thinking of a given profession. Um, this mentality needs to change. Those skills have got to be transferable. There's no guarantee that the degree that you study for will necessarily translate into a job that uh, you do. We've got a few minutes, just two minutes before the news. I just wanted to quickly mention, you know, about this notion of higher education and how it could become a burden for students. And I'm referring specifically about the debt issue. Uh, in in some other uh, countries around the world, uh, people come out of university with great amount of debts. Is there a cost benefit um, in in East Asian countries here? Uh, what what do you see? Very briefly in one minute. Sorry about that, Professor Horta. Um, well, it's it's difficult to generalize. Um, my perception here is that um, I think families and students in East Asia are much more pragmatic about the choices. Um, and, and they have a, a, a quite good idea about, you know, what do they want and what will be the possible outcomes um, compared to many other places uh, elsewhere. Um, depends a lot of, um, a lot of this also depends on the system, the, the support system. Many countries have a welfare system for students and, and we have it here in Hong Kong as well, which help to alleviate the potential burden and the access of students from lower social economic status to come to higher education, to have a chance uh, and, and to improve their lives. Uh, however, um, some people take loans to go to courses that then don't pay off in terms of salary. It's a personal individual choice. Uh, maybe they could be a bit more informed, um, but even if they're more informed, it's always a personal choice. So it's very difficult to kind of tackle this issue uh, with policies because in the end, um, choices are personal um, and, and sometimes they don't work out. Yeah. Wow. It's certainly a big topic. And I always enjoy chatting with you, Professor Hugo Horta. Um, always uh, <laughs> really great discussions. And I really look forward to the next one. Uh, we've been chatting with Professor Hugo Horta, who's an associate professor from the Academic Unit of Social Contexts and Policies of Education at the University of Hong Kong. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.